If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It was the Greek philosopher Plato who first spoke of the island of Atlantis, a once mighty power that disappeared beneath the waves thousands of years ago. It's generally accepted to be a work of fiction, but what if such a place really had existed? What if there was once an advanced civilization that spread its knowledge across the globe before meeting a disastrous fate? Welcome to the sixth episode of Conspiracy from History Extra. I'm Rob Attar, and today we're going to be exploring the theory of a lost civilization that some people believe explains many of the world's most remarkable archaeological finds. Joining me on the voyage to Atlantis was Flint Dibble, an archaeologist at the University of Cardiff who specialises in ancient Greece. He's also been a leading voice in response to the recent Netflix series Ancient Apocalypse, and you'll hear some discussion of that programme and its connections to Atlantis towards the end of our conversation. So today we're going to be discussing the myth of the ancient civilization of Atlantis. To begin with, Flint, could you please tell our listeners where does this originate from? Yeah, for sure. And to begin with, I'd also even say it's not a myth. It's a, it's a philosophical allegory. So the first mention of Atlantis in ancient sources comes from Plato, and he writes the, these dialogues, the Timaeus and the Critias. And in there, the interlocutors, uh, Timaeus, Critias, Socrates, they, they discuss this story of Atlantis. People might be familiar with Plato's Republic. And so it's sort of set up the day after that discussion. And the idea here is they're, they're, they're interrogating how Plato's ideal city that was constructed by Socrates and the interlocutors in the Republic, how it would perform in sort of action, in a war. And so the antagonist is Atlantis. So does Plato himself either believe or suggest that Atlantis is a real place? Um, no. I, I, to be clear, the, the, the way these dialogues are is it's a conversation between different people. However, it's a fictional conversation, right? So it's, it's people that could never have existed in the same room with each other. One of the people there, for example, is Hermocrates, a Sicilian. And so 
in there, they even start off by saying Critias is the one that tells the story about Atlantis. And he starts off by saying, you need to excuse me because this might not be believable because unlike my, you know, my colleague Timaeus, who just discussed the gods, I'm going to be discussing humans. And that's more difficult because everybody can poke fault in that. And so he even starts off by saying that, but then he starts, then he moves on by sort of creating this narrative of this kind of story that was told by his great, 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 great grandfather, in a sense, all the way back to Solon. And so it starts off by him saying this is very false. And then he he leaps into this kind of narrative. And is it from Plato that we get this idea of a lost city that was buried under the waves? Or does that come later? Well, not the idea of it being a lost city. Certainly the Critias, the dialogue is cut short. It's only about halfway finished. We don't know why. Is it because of that's what was preserved to us? It was not a very popular platonic dialogue in, in ancient history. So it might be you just don't have a great copy of it, or it might be it was actually unfinished, right? But the ending of it is the gods and Zeus destroying Atlantis, the ending of what we have, I should say. And that's sort of cut short in the middle while we get the description of Athens, which I think is important. We don't get a description of the war between Atlantis and Athens. So so was anyone in the ancient world taking the idea of Atlantis seriously as having really existed? No, I mean, it depends on how you define the ancient world, but uh, it, it wasn't a, a topic that was discussed very much. This is actually why I would argue, and, and most scholars would argue, it's not a myth. So when you look at like our evidence from mythology, this is an oral history that we get. And we don't just have kind of the texts that were written down to us. So the Homeric Iliad and Odyssey, we have all kinds of iconography depicting mythic scenes. We even have iconography depicting mythic scenes that we don't have any textual evidence for that's been preserved. A really famous one is Achilles and Ajax playing a board game on the beach of Troy. And so we have no story for that, but we have this scene showing up time and time again. We have nothing like that for Atlantis. However, near the end of antiquity, sort of at the beginning of the Middle Ages, in these sort of Neoplatonic schools, so we're talking 4th, 5th century AD, we, there is a discussion about this among these people then, about whether it could have been real or not. And so that's the first sort of discussion we really get on that topic about whether it could have been real or not. There really just isn't that much discussion of Atlantis or then there's zero depiction of it until the end of antiquity and into the Christian period when it starts to be connected with this kind of flood mythology, right? Um, and so, yeah, that's the, that's the kind of start of that questioning, I suppose, at least for the evidence we have. That's really interesting. So how does the Atlantis and the flood story, how did they come together? I mean, the idea that, that Atlantis was destroyed in a flood Obviously, that could appeal to people that were thinking about how to relate paganism and Christianity as Christianity is becoming more popular. So in that sense, there's a, a connected story. That said, I'm not a scholar of late antique philosophy, so I'm not the best one to answer that kind of question per se. I've done some research into how it relates into modern ideas of, of, of the flood, but, uh, but I, I'm not a good scholar of early Christianity to really pick, pick that apart. The kind of the version of the Atlantis myth we're talking about mainly today is a much more modern one. So how how does that come about and, and how does it get connected to the Mesoamerican world? 
Yeah, the, the, this is actually really fascinating because even these these limited discussions of Atlantis that existed in late antiquity, they weren't very popular, they weren't very copied, and uh, they weren't something that was paid attention to that much. So they weren't a big deal. Atlantis really starts to become a big deal with the discovery of the Americas. And so it's at that time with colonialism and the, the establishment of colonies that the Atlantis story starts to become co-opted. And so people say, oh, you know, there's this story that talks about these civilizations that are past the Mediterranean, past across the Atlantic. And so maybe they're describing, you know, the Americas. And in particular, that, the Atlantis story and then other sorts of myths and stories from the ancient world are actually directly used by the Spanish crown to establish authority and ownership over lands in the Americas. And so the Hesperides are another good example of one of these stories that the, that the Spanish crown uses to say, we've actually always owned this territory and uh, ruled it. And so it justifies their, their claim to ownership and the colonization of these territories. And then from there, it really picks up. There's, there's kind of the, the story, it's a fictional story um, from the 17th century by Francis Bacon, the New Atlantis. And there there's this idea that, that the, the people of Atlantis survived in this island and they were advanced and started uh, spreading technology around. And that's the first idea of this advanced society, right? And then that really just picks up steam. That After that point, Atlantis starts showing up as being anywhere and everywhere. There's a famous idea that it comes from Scandinavia, for example. And then it, 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 it continues to pick up steam into the 19th century. In the 19th century, with more professional and amateur interest in the sort of cultural heritage that exists in the Americas, we start seeing this a stronger connection in the development of kind of these universal theories. And Ignatius Donnelly, in his, his book on Atlantis from 1882, was really the one that sort of tied together all these different strands, in a sense, taking fictional ideas, theologian ideas, all the way back to even those late antique uh, scholars that were discussing it, and then tying it into material culture in the Americas. He sort of puts together this big universalizing theory that Atlantis was destroyed in the flood. And then the survivors were the ones that sort of scattered around the world, and they were the ones that brought everything from agriculture to the construction of monuments to even gunpowder to all these civilizations. They were the ones that were, he sort of claims that they're responsible for all the major inventions until the Industrial Revolution. And so it's this grand, grand myth, and it really picks up steam as an explanation that existed sort of to the side of legitimate archaeology. And underpinning this, is there this kind of idea that in the Americas, people from Europe went over there and they saw things that seemed to them surprisingly advanced. And also they saw similarities, perhaps, between things in the Americas that they saw in the old world. And they were trying to find an explanation for that. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, they're trying to understand how how these monuments are there. And at the same time, they want to have claim to this land and to the history of it. And so this is a very appealing idea to sort of colonists and to people living there at that time, because, of course, the idea is, is that Atlantis it's connected with European civilizations, after all. And so when it falls, its survivors then head to the Americas and elsewhere, and they they bring these 
technologies and this knowledge with them. And that's the explanation for it. And so they draw upon, for example, these kind of indigenous stories and myths that were not necessarily told by indigenous people, but written down by colonists, early colonists, that talk about white people living among Native Americans and indigenous peoples. And that's part of the evidence there. They also tie in kind of mistranslations of, of codices. In the 19th century, scholars did not know how to translate some of these things. They thought they debated on what these scripts could have meant, these indigenous scripts. And so they were mistranslated, and some of those also get tied in as well. So there's there's all kinds of problems with it, but it, it certainly ties into kind of an explanation for what's going on with the archaeology and cultural heritage that they find, and one that's appealing to them. And does this represent something of a condescending attitude towards the people of the New World, that they couldn't have created these impressive things without some kind of European or old world influence? Yeah, I think so. I think that that's the implication of many pseudo-archaeological ideas, not just Atlantis, is that indigenous peoples do not deserve or or could not have accomplished uh, what we see, their cultural heritage. And so, therefore, it must have been this advanced super civilization like Atlantis, or it must have been ancient aliens, or something or another along those lines. And so, yeah, that's certainly the implication that is there. So a lot of these theories are based on this idea of there having been some very advanced lost civilization that was utterly destroyed, barring a few people and a few ideas. Is there any archaeological evidence for such a civilization having existed? No, not at all. I mean, the modern myth that exists is that archaeologists really don't have a good understanding of prehistory. But when we're talking about 10,000 years ago, we actually have thousands of sites that we've excavated and millions of artifacts. And, you know, the idea here is that the flood would have wiped out evidence for this advanced civilization. But archaeologists conduct underwater archaeology all the time. And so it's not like we found some sort of advanced Ice Age ruins from 10,000 years ago underwater. And plus, to be honest, even with the fact that sea levels have risen after the end of the Ice Age, most of the inhabited territory is still above water. Right. And so the the idea that this advanced civilization only existed in areas that are now submerged, which we've investigated, is kind of ludicrous because we have just a, a huge amount of evidence. You can go to any museum and see the millions of stone tools, animal bones. You can see sculpture, figurines, cave painting and more from all over the world, every single continent except for Antarctica. We have plentiful evidence for humans at that time. In spite of this, there are obviously still many adherents to this. I don't know if you want to call it Atlantis theory or lost civilization theory. What what do you think is driving them to believe this when there, as you say, isn't really the archaeological support for it? Yeah, that's a that's a good question, and it's a tough one to come to grips with for people that uh, know the evidence really well because we you know we've seen it and handled it. So I don't have a great answer. I think it talks to a lot of ideas that are appealing, especially in today's world. I mean, even before today's world, this is appealing because it's a it's a simple explanation for world history or prehistory, if you will. Instead of having to acknowledge that history and archaeology is extremely complex. And there's a variety of different cultures and societies and peoples that underwent a variety of different developments. This, on the other hand, is one simple narrative. And so I think that that's very appealing, for sure. I think at the same time, in 
if you look at the history of this idea, it's especially been appealing sort of in the Americas. And so it helps people connect with archaeology that's around them. It's much easier for people in the UK to see themselves in the past in, in what they have around them. But it's more difficult in the Americas. So if you believe that this sort of super civilization was there and that you have a connection to it yourself, if you are a white person, then that 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 becomes something that you can see your identity in. And then at the same time, there's the catastrophism involved in this. And that's always very appealing as well. So there's this idea of there's this huge catastrophe that helped define history. That's very appealing. It's very interesting. And, and we live in a world today where catastrophism is very, very uh, appealing today. You know, we, we have movies about it. We have the climate change that we're dealing with right now. We have, you know, the, the, the threat of things like nuclear war. And so if we sort of see this in the past, it, it's something that we can connect to and it appeals to that kind of mindset, right? And so I think in all these ways, it's very appealing. And I'm sure there's others that I'm forgetting getting. You did kind of allude to this in your last answer. Is there sometimes a racial or racist element to this? I'm not saying among all the adherents to this theory, but are some people coming from the point of view that only white people could have had this kind of knowledge or this kind of genius that then had to be spread to the non-white people? I mean, yeah, I certainly want to make sure that I'm saying that not every single adherent of this idea thinks so explicitly because or even thinks so at all, because that's simply not the case. There's a there's a wide variety of ways in which pseudo-archaeology is used in modern culture. But certainly there is a segment of believers that overtly even think that indigenous people were not capable of these kind of achievements. And, you know, ever since I've been writing about this, I've I've encountered these sorts of people who have, uh, you know, made posts towards me like, of course, indigenous people could not have accomplished this. Europeans were responsible for all the great inventions that have occurred. This also has a deep history as well. This Atlantis idea from Ignatius Donnelly that I described in 1882, it was picked up by the Theosophical Society and then from there into kind of this spiritual uh, idea ideas of many people in, in Nazi Germany. Um, and they actually founded the Institute for uh, Atlantis Studies, where a segment of, of these uh, Nazis believed that Aryans were descended from Ant Atlantides. And Ignatius Donnelly actually said that as well, that, that, that the Aryans were descended from the, uh, the people of Atlantis. And so they specifically tried to make this connection that the Aryans were the Atlanteans, or Atlantides would be the way to say it in Greek. And so, yeah, the superiority that exists exists and 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 is connected to 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 steal credit let's say from indigenous peoples that has a direct tie into sort of uh white supremacy through that and it still shows up in sort of uh articles blog posts and youtube videos online and uh popular social media pseudo archaeologists and so that that idea is certainly there explicitly among a certain uh, population of, of, of people that believe in this. It's also been clear in the media storm that has followed uh, sort of the discussion of this, this latest uh, show that the, the types of media that are critiquing archaeologists are very much on the, the sort of right spectrum, and they're very much parroting this kind of uh, ideas of white supremacy. So yeah, it's very tied in even though I don't want to say everybody that believes it uh, follow, subscribes to those ideas because that would be false. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. 
And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. And the show you're talking about, um, for anyone who hasn't seen it, is Ancient Apocalypse, which is a Netflix series and presented by Graham Hancock. But I mean, as I say, for those who haven't seen it, how close is this to the kind of traditional Atlantis theory? Oh, directly. I mean, so it's actually a complicated sort of game that he plays, let's say, in his books, where he rarely ever mentions Atlantis. But if you read his books closely and you compare the ideas with Ignatius Donnelly, not only does he cite Ignatius Donnelly, oftentimes actually for 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 evidence that the people were white, which is kind of interesting, but also in his acknowledgments, he acknowledges his debt to Ignatius Donnelly. But but his 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 overarching theory and the way he puts it together is very, very reminiscent of Ignatius Donnelly. And so there's a direct connection there. And as far as I know, uh, I've not heard all of his public uh, speeches or appearances. In the show, he actually directly connects it to Atlantis several times, and in fact, for an entire episode. And so he he is now becoming more open about that direct connection with this idea of an advanced society from the Ice Age with these ideas, this modern mythology of Atlantis that sort of didn't start with Ignatius Donnelly, but really became summarized and popularized with Ignatius Donnelly. And so in that sense, it is very directly connected before you had to read between the lines. But if you watch the show, it's extremely clear at the end of episode three, throughout episode four, in the final episode, he connects this directly with Atlantis. So this series is, you know, a big budget Netflix series. A lot of people have watched it. How difficult is it for archaeologists such as yourself and historians to try and challenge a theory that's getting this kind of exposure on such a mainstream platform? Yeah, I mean, it's very upsetting. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm American, so in this sense, I'm somewhat used to it because uh, shows like Ancient Aliens or other Atlantis shows have been popular on the History Channel and the Discovery Channel in the U.S. for, for a while. And so it's kind of depressing to see how, how much traction this has with, with people when I think that uh, the reality of 21st century archaeology is there's a lot of interesting new methods and questions and finds that we have. And so I, I would personally love it if there was more attention paid to those kind of things. And this really seems to me to be the very first pseudo archaeology show that has huge traction internationally outside of North America. It was one of the top two shows for a while in the UK. It was in the top 10 internationally for a while on Netflix and in the, you know, in a lot of different uh, countries in, in Europe and elsewhere. And so that's, that's, that's very uh, shocking and problematic. What worries me about a show like this and pseudo archaeological ideas becoming so popular worldwide is there, there are a blank slate upon which you can put any kind of ideas because they're not grounded in reality. And so they can be used to promote sort of any narrative 
out there, especially an anti-expert and anti-intellectual narrative um, that can then go in any direction. And so that that very much uh, concerns me. And so I, I I wish people would pay attention to real archaeology because the kind of new advances we have, we can you know we can zoom in on individual people and animals. I study ancient animals from Greece. We we have. Bold, grand new discoveries, you know, that have been discovered in the last year, the last 10 years that would shock and excite people. We, we, we are discovering things and, 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 and asking questions that relate to our own society today, like how have past societies adapted to things like climate change? How do past societies deal with things like misinformation and disinformation? All these topics are being researched right now and they're very relevant. And I think that they are the kinds of things we should be paying attention to because they can inform how we contextualize and think about our own challenges in today's world. You know, as someone who is trying to combat this Atlantis theory, what, what do you think is some of the strongest evidence against there having been this lost civilization? Let's answer that in two parts. The first part, I think, is is to first combat Atlantis directly. And that's actually really clear. As I mentioned earlier, there's no evidence that it's an oral myth. We have a lot of evidence for how mythology in, in the Greek world relates to the archaeological record. So direct descriptions in, say, the Iliad and the Odyssey and other early mythology uh, that relate to things that we find, material culture, like the arms, the weapons, the shields, the helmets even, of these warriors. And so we can tell that, it's, that these are oral myths because they mix together artifacts from different periods in time. So you have sort of the boar's tusk helmet that we find in Mycenaean bronze age burials. We have different shields and spears that, that come from either the Bronze Age or the Iron Age, closer to when Homer, if there was a Homer, would have lived, closer to when these myths were written down. And so we have a good understanding of sort of the, the oral development of these mythical stories. And we have nothing like that for the Atlantis story, right? So there's no oral evidence. There's no material culture that can be linked to it. There's no iconography that relates to it because we have sort of art artistic scenes of myth mythological sort of narratives, and there's nothing like that for Atlantis, right? And at the same time, as an archaeologist, we always work, for, and this, this will start tying into the second part of the question, a lost civilization. When we develop theories, we have to always work from the known to the unknown, right? You take stock of the evidence you actually have, and then from there, you move to the questions you want to sort of answer, right? And so, you know, you can do this with the Atlantis story in Plato by looking at the city of Athens, because he also describes the city of Athens in a lot of detail. And whenever you get a documentary or a book on Atlantis searching for it, they, they, they ignore that. They don't go to the stuff we know and how Plato's description of Athens or the interlocutor's description of Athens, it is not an accurate description of what we know, the archaeology and the geology of Athens. He describes these geological transformations. He describes sort of a, a city and a town in Athens, and it looks nothing like the archaeological and geological evidence we have for that area. And so in that sense, we know that we can't pay attention, we can't trust the details in this story, because if we can't trust it for the city we have good evidence for, Athens, then why should we trust any of the details to help us find an unknown, something like Atlantis? And in that sense, we can start thinking about a lost civilization, right? So if we're looking for a lost civilization, the first thing we need to do is contextualize that kind of lost civilization with the evidence we actually do have. And as I said earlier, we have a lot of evidence from 10,000 years ago, from the Ice Age. We have thousands of sites, 
millions of artifacts, and we know how people were living and where they were living. And so we know that obviously they were living in some of these areas that were submerged, but the evidence we have is similar to the evidence we have that is from places that have not been submerged um, with the rising of the sea level. And, and so in that sense, we also know if we want to give credit for example, for this lost civilization, introducing agriculture, for example, so domesticated crops, domesticated animals. We have a lot of evidence for the domestication of plants and animals, from morphological changes to the different areas in which these different species were domesticated. If there was one global advanced civilization, why are different animals and and crops showing up in different areas? Why would they not bring the same crops and animals to all these different places, right? Certainly with globalization in more recent times, we've seen that these species spread all over the world, right? At the same time, we can track the morphological and genetic changes in these plant and animal species. And we know the timeline of it. And the timeline, certainly with the exception of dogs, occurs after the end of the Ice Age, right? So it wasn't some introduction. We have the wild progenitors and we have the the changes that occur in step-by-step fashion to domestication. But the same is true for the construction of monuments, right? You look at pyramids in different areas of the world, We don't just have these monuments just appearing out of nowhere. People didn't just wake up one day and build the the largest pyramid in each area. No, we have sort of the step-by-step changes in construction, changes in development, changes in, in quarrying, changes in iconography that happens over time. We have it in C2, sort of in this local context. And we can't ignore that. We can't just go to the biggest monument and say, this appeared out of nowhere. It was introduced all of a sudden. That's ignoring all the known evidence that we actually have. And so, you know, as a scientist, as an archaeological scientist, and as a scholar, uh, we have to always work from the known to the unknown. That's how we excavate sites. That's how we propose research questions. It's how we raise funds. It's how we publish our articles. And so that's, what I think, the biggest flaw with any of these kind of arguments and sort of the, the, the strength of, of, of real archaeology, right? And have many attempts been made to actually locate or find artefacts from Atlantis? Has anyone actually tried to find it? Well, certainly, you know, in, in, in the early days of archaeology, I would say pre-professionalization as we think of it today, there, there was justification for, for thinking there might be something like Atlantis, right? I mean, the, not much archaeological research had been done. And so... People were finding different uh, places at that time and exploring different places, Mycenae, Troy, Pompeii, et cetera, all over the world, right? And so nobody knew what to find and there wasn't really sort of the rigor and the known that we have now, that, that mound of evidence that we have now to work against. And so, yes, lots of people, some of them were overt pseudo-archaeologists, like this Institute for Atlantis Studies in Nazi Germany. Some of them were what I what we would call early archaeologists. They certainly looked for this kind of stuff, right? They looked for Atlantis and never have they found it, which helped us sort of say, well, now we have all this mound of known evidence. After so many decades and centuries and generations of scholars actually looking for something like Atlantis that's not been found, it's clearly not there. And, and people have now gone back to the, you know, the original sources. We now have a better understanding of how mythology relates to the archaeological record in different places. And so the, the weight of this evidence, nobody's looking for it today because of all of this. But early on, yes. And, uh, you know, 
I, I again also having people uh, who who are adherents of this idea coming at me online on Twitter and things like that in the last month or even before when I started writing on this. You know, one of the things they always bring up, but everybody thought Troy was not real, and then Heinrich Schliemann found Troy, and it's like, what do you mean all archaeologists thought Troy was not real? There wasn't a field of archaeology at that time. It was in its infancy. There wasn't some sort of you know rigorous study with a mound of evidence that we could we could start to argue against. And so at the same time, Schliemann didn't even find Troy. The, the mound of Hisarlik was found before Schliemann ever got there. And so, you know, this, this sort of idea is they ignore the history of, of archaeology itself. You, you mentioned there that you've been in discussions with people on, on social media about this. I mean, do you think it's possible to combat these kind of conspiracy theories or ultimately are there some people whose minds will never be changed? Um, I definitely think it's possible to combat these kind of uh, conspiracy theories. I just gave a talk at the University of Vienna uh, last week talking to my colleagues, to archaeologists, on different methods that we can use to try to combat this pseudo-archaeology. I don't think we'll ever reach everybody, but that can't always be our goal. There's The, the reality is, is that most people out there don't know a whole lot about archaeology unless they majored in it in university level or or they've been, you know, really, really gung-ho and interested in it. There's a lot of fantastic amateur archaeologists out there that go on excavations, that read real archaeology and, and engage with the public as well about it. So I think that our real goal needs to be not so much to fight against the true believers of these kind of theories. That's that's not really my goal here. My goal overall with my public writing is to actually just share real archaeology with people, to, to share why it's relevant today, to share why it's what we're doing today is interesting and different from archaeology that they might think of when they think of, you know, early 20th century, 19th century archaeology that's popularized and stuff like Indiana Jones and, and whatnot. And so what we do today is very, very different. And, and people usually are are very fascinated by it. I've been only writing about it on social media for a few years, and I have 25,000 people now that like to read what I write. And so that's, that's pretty cool. And without much support, this is just me doing it. And, uh, and so I think that the more archaeologists take a sort of outward public persona on this and share what we do, the more people will get in, interested and see what we do. I mean, I've given a bevy of talks to sort of, you know, pre-university level students, at retirement homes, in, in museums and things like that. And, you know, people are fascinated by real archaeology. There's there's a lot of interesting stuff there. It's just that it needs to sort of be there for people to see, right? They need to they need to actually engage with it. And when people come across it, they they really like it. They it appeals to them. And so I think alerting the public about the problems with this kind of pseudo-archaeology is also valid. Since I first wrote my Twitter thread critiquing ancient apocalypse, I've had a lot of people say that they searched for this. They started watching it. They looked for it online. They came across my article or my Twitter thread, and they were really grateful and thankful to start to see the, the actual response and the real evidence that we have. And so this actually does reach people. I've had about a million and a half people come across my Twitter thread. I've had a few hundred thousand people read my article in the conversation. And so this is this is hitting people, right? Not as many people as, as have seen the show. That's like five, six million. But I, you know, people are listening to the podcast. They'll listen to this podcast. They'll listen, they'll read newspaper articles on it. And so that's hitting even more people. And so I think that it does come across people's radar and it informs them that, all right, if we want to watch this show, we need to see us into entertainment and not nonfiction, right? And so, uh, and, and that's valuable because I've had people say, well, I still want to watch the show as entertainment. 
I don't have a problem with that. You know, the pseudo-archaeology shows up as an entertainment all the time. Indiana Jones is full of pseudo-archaeology. And uh, and people think it's entertaining. I, I used to think it's entertaining. I still do to a certain degree. So yeah, I think entertainment value is important. But I think at the same time, what we actually have is relevant and interesting and entertaining in and of itself. And when people come across it, they, they think so. I think I've been through all the main things I was going to ask you. Is there anything really important that I didn't bring up that I should have asked you about, do you think? I think there's one thing that we could talk about a little more, which is this idea of catastrophism, right? And so the catastrophism that's sort of central to these ideas is sort of talking about some major apocalyptic event, kind of like a, a, a great flood or a cosmic impact that's going to destroy society, right? And I think we live in a world where we actually have a, a sort of problem that's front and center, and that is climate change. And so I think that that's something we need to acknowledge. The catastrophe is not something that's sudden. When we talk about sort of the fall of Rome, the, the end of different civilizations or societies, these are rarely sudden events. These are sort of more gradual events. And what we're finding is that there is a link sometimes to climate change, ancient climate change. So I, I actually have an article on this about how people adapted to climate change at the end of the Bronze Age. And so I think that's something that people need to start understanding. The catastrophes aren't always all sudden. It's not some cosmic impact. It's not some global flood. It's a gradual change that occurs over a period of time that relates to sort of political and economic responses to what's going on in society, to what's going on in the environment. And these are gradual changes. And we need to start to acknowledge that and look to the past to start to understand how to respond to our own challenges, right, in society and with climate change and whatnot. And I, I hope that people will start looking more to sort of the recent studies in the last, they've really started being published uh, in large numbers in the last 10 years on human adaptations, human responses, or lack of adaptation to things like climate change in the past and how that's impacted society. And I think we need to understand that social change is a complex, nuanced, slow process over generations, just as our response to our own crises are. And so I think we need to look more clearly at the past and not frame them as some sudden thing, because that's not what's going on right now, right? It's a gradual, slow process. We've all seen it, those of us that are our age, over the last few decades, and it'll continue, you know, in future generations. That was Flint Dibble. You can read his piece on Ancient Apocalypse at theconversation.com. And that's all for this episode, and indeed this series of Conspiracy. But we may well return with another series next year. So if there are any historical conspiracy theories you'd be interested in hearing more about, then do email us at podcast at historyextra.com. Thanks a lot for listening. This episode was produced by Jack Bateman.